morning, y'all. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is John Trapp. I want to thank you for bringing the church here this morning. We actually think that church is not just, just this building. Um, the church is actually you. And so you brought church to Christ the King today. So thank you for doing that. If you uh, are visiting with us today, we're particularly glad that you're here. Um, church, you are the people. So that means people are visiting you today. So please, uh, please help our guests feel welcome. We want to extend to any of our guests in this building, no, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, we want you to experience the same kind of welcome that we believe that all of us have received through the Lord Jesus Christ and by God's grace when we didn't deserve it. So no matter who you are, where you're coming from, you are welcome here. We are really glad to have you with us. Let's uh, now read from Acts chapter 17. We're picking up in our sermon series through the book of Acts. Um, and so you know, we're going, we're going to go all the way until, uh, until Easter, uh, where we'll end Paul's second missionary journey. And we're gonna, that'll be our stopping point. And then we're going to start a new series on Genesis after, um, after Easter. But we're continuing in this missionary journey of Paul. Acts chapter 17, it's on page 926 in the Black Bibles in front of you. If you want to read along. And now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks that you have given us your word. That you've preserved it for us. That we hold it in our own language. That we can know more of who you are, of who you've revealed yourself to be. And we ask that by the help of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see now. How your word speaks to us, how it speaks to our need for you, and your willing and gracious supply to give us the grace that we need. And so we pray that you'd help us to see that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can see from the sermon title in your order of worship, uh, we're talking about necessary suffering. Necessary suffering. Uh, three points for you. First, the necessity of Christ's suffering. Second, the share in Christ's suffering. 
And third, the hope from Christ's suffering. So the necessity of it, the share in it, and the hope from it. Well, we find Paul continuing on his missionary journey, and he, he takes a page out of the Paul playbook, which is show up in a new city. You know, he's just left Philippi. He planted a church in Philippi, which is the first European church ever. And now he's going to the capital, capital city of that same region, Macedonia, that Philippi was part of. He's going to the capital, capital city, Thessalonica. And he takes the page out of the Paul playbook by going straight to the synagogue, which would have been like home field advantage for Paul. I mean, Paul grew up in the synagogue. He was a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He was an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. And so what Paul does is he shows up and it says for three Sabbath days in a row, what does he do? He reasons with them from the scriptures. He explains from the scriptures. He proves from the scriptures. He persuades from the scriptures, verse 4. Reasoning, explaining, proving, persuading, verses 2 through 4. What I want you to see is that Paul engages the people in Thessalonica on an intellectual level. Christianity is a set of beliefs that engages our minds, which, which makes sense if God is who he says he is in the Bible. If he is the one who made everything, who thought up physics and chemistry and mathematics and calculus, which I'm told is a kind of mathematics. I didn't get super far on that, but y'all know what I'm talking about. God is the one who thought up all of this, and so he engages our minds through his word. And so that's what Paul does when he expounds the scriptures to them. A pastor named R.C. Sproul says, you don't have to give up your intellect to trust the Bible. But then he goes on to say, but you do have to give up your pride. You don't have to give up your intellect to trust the Bible. You do have to give up your pride because our pride kicks against what the scriptures say because we don't like to be uncomfortable. And the scriptures press on things that if we were to submit to the scripture would make our life uncomfortable. And so our pride pushes against it. We duck out of the parts of the Bible that we don't like, parts that would make us change our lifestyle or how we spend our time or our money or what we do with our bodies or our sexuality or how we treat our enemies. And for a lot of Christians, we, we say that we believe that the Bible is true and that God is who he says he is and we are who the Bible says we are. But our lives don't actually appear to be shaped by the scriptures, oftentimes because we're uncomfortable with them. We don't like suffering, even when God's word is clear on the subject of suffering, which is that we will. We will suffer. And y'all, one consequence of this one of the ways that this hurts our ability to love our neighbor is that Christians' unwillingness to suffer for what we believe is actually confusing to our unbelieving neighbors. 
Because what happens is they, they look at our lives and then they look at their own life and they're like, there's like no difference. There's no difference between them and me. Like why, why would I become a Christian if it doesn't really do anything? If, if the only thing that's gonna happen if I, become, if I become a Christian is I'm now going to feel guilty for sleeping in on Sunday or playing golf, pass. You know, they, they look at our lives and they see that it's not being shaped. It, it reminds me of a story that a pastor friend of mine told me about sharing the gospel with someone who is in prison. And he laid out the gospel to this, this man in prison. He said, listen, it's actually not by what you do that gets you into heaven. It's, it's about what Jesus has done on your behalf and putting your faith in that. And actually, when you put your faith in Jesus, you're righteous. You're not guilty anymore. Like God sees you as his perfectly righteous son that he adopts into his family by his grace alone, through Jesus alone, by your faith alone. That's it. And the prisoner, the prisoner began shaking his hands. He's like, I can't believe this because there's so many Christians. And if I believe that, if I believed what you just said, I would crawl across broken glass to tell anybody about that because that news is so good. You see, our, our unwillingness to suffer, our unwillingness to crawl across glass to tell someone about it, it says something about us, doesn't it? So my question is, do, do we believe, do we believe in the necessitative suffering Christ? I'm not even sure necessitative is a word. I just made it up. Anyway, oh boy, second sermon. All right, the necessity of Christ's suffering. First point, Paul shows up and he begins preaching in verse three and he says, it was necessary. It was necessary that the Christ suffer. Y'all, that is a divisive message. And you see, you see it happen like immediately. As he begins preaching, the necessity of Christ's suffering. Some of them, some of the Jews in the synagogue believe. And some of the Gentiles believe. And it says there were many women, influential women in the city in Thessalonica who heard and they believed. But also some were bothered. It, it, it kind of pairs with what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians. He says we preach Christ crucified. We preach the necessity of the suffering Christ. We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? It's because they believed their understanding in the first century that needed to be reshaped, that Jesus worked to reshape, was that the Messiah was something entirely different from what Jesus actually was. Their expectation was that the Messiah was gonna come and fix their political Rome problem. Messiah was gonna come and make their political lives more comfortable. He was going to get Rome out of Israel, this Roman occupation that was happening in Jerusalem and the whole countryside, Rome was going to get out of there and Messiah was going to restore this political kingdom on this earth to us. And so when Jesus tells his disciples who think that he's maybe the Messiah, when Jesus tells his disciples, hey, listen, I, you know what the Son of Man is going to do? The Son of Man is going to be crucified, tells him in Mark 8. That, that like goes all against what they think the Messiah is about. And so Peter Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, and he, Peter rebukes Jesus. Don't you know what the Messiah is supposed to be? Peter rebukes Jesus, and it's then when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
which sounds like a kind of an overreaction for having a political argument. I'm actually not that far off sometimes. Anyway, um, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Do you know why he calls Peter Satan that time more than any, like never, never again, only time Jesus calls someone Satan in the Bible. He calls him that because that is the satanic temptation that's been thrown at Jesus and that continues to be thrown at Jesus, which is to take the crown without the cross. It's, it's the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. When Satan says, listen, kneel before me, I'll give you every kingdom. I'll give you every kingdom on the earth. You can have this world, which you said you came to save. You can have this world. Just don't go to the cross. Jesus wouldn't do it because he knew what he had to get his disciples to know, what he has to get us to know, which is that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Y'all, even after the resurrection, the disciples still don't get it. Remember in Acts 1, the first sermon I did here, when the disciples were like, when are we getting, when are we getting Israel back? Jesus is resurrected, and they're still asking him that. Because we want the crown without the cross. It's so like us. So what Paul does is he opens the scriptures, he begins reasoning, he begins explaining and proving and persuading that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Man, you look at the Old Testament and you can just hear what Paul would have pointed to. You can just hear, I can hear Paul, maybe his first sermon, he's there three, three Sabbaths, right? His first sermon, maybe he turns to Genesis 3. He says, look at Genesis 3. God says that he is going to send one to crush the head of the serpent who's going to end evil. But do you know what will happen to that one? The serpent will bite the heel of the one who crushes it. He will suffer as he crushes evil and death. Or maybe, maybe he would open to Leviticus. Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus. Everyone's worst nightmare. I'm just kidding. Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus. And you hear him going through all of this law that is actually God-given and beautiful and teaches us how God actually makes a sacrificial, a sacrificial possibility for us to be in relationship with him. And he would, have, he would have expounded about how when you bring your sin offering, you would put your hand on this animal. And this would have been a visual that they would have been experiencing that day, in, in those days, in the first century. You take your hand off that animal and what happens? What does the priest do? As soon as you take your hand off that, that animal, after you've, after you've communicated that my sin is on that animal, you would see that creature slaughtered in front of you. It was necessary for there to be a payment made for our sin. He would have expounded on that. Or perhaps he would have gone to the prophets. Maybe he would have opened the book of Zechariah, written around 520 B.C. And he would have said, Listen to Zechariah 12, 10. I will pour out on the house of David, Jesus' lineage, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, where Jesus died, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Paul would have said, God's only child has been pierced. The firstborn of all has laid down his life for us. He was born of the house of David, just like the prophet said. He was born in the city of Bethlehem, just as the prophet said. He was a refugee to Egypt, just as the prophet said. 
He, was, he suffered for us, just as the prophet Isaiah writes about the suffering servant. Or maybe Paul would have opened Psalm 22. The psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. A psalm that was written around 587 BC, 600 years before Jesus of Nazareth is crucified in Jerusalem. 600 years. Y'all, that's so long before. That's before Buddha was born. That's before Socrates and Plato were born. It's before Alexander the Great. It's before Confucius. Listen to these ancient words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And listen, this is like a narrative of, of the crucifixion. 600 years before it happens. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Imagine him reading Psalm 22 and saying, this just happened in Jerusalem like 15 years ago to a guy named Jesus. And by the way, I've seen him and he's alive. It was necessary. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Well, why was it necessary for the Christ to suffer? Read, read any of Paul's letters. Read Ephesians, read Galatians, read, read, pick, a, pick a book. Pick one of his letters and you'll see. He explains why it's necessary for the Christ to suffer because we're guilty. It's necessary for the Christ to suffer because there is a debt of sin that I and you, we all owe. And maybe you don't think you're that sinful. Listen, like just, just to even apply your own standard for righteousness to yourself. Like, you know, like when you're like, Ugh, why is that person more like blank? Or why can't they be nicer or kinder? Or why can't they, you know, why do they gossip about people? Or oh, I don't like talking to her. Like she's, um, you know, she's like kind of self-righteous sometimes. Like just apply whatever standard you have. What if, that, what if God was like, hey, guess what? Here's what I'm gonna do. Everything that you've said about like other people, I'm gonna apply that standard to you. Let's see how you stack up. Uh, that would not go well for me. Maybe you're better than I am. But here's the deal, it's not just our standard that God applies, it's his, his holy, righteous standard. We are guilty before it. And so a payment needs to be made. And maybe you're like, oh, why a payment? Why is God like, can he just kind of like get over it? Um, John Cox is a um, counselor who's come and spoke at, our church, uh, spoke at our church a couple of times. He's actually coming in the fall, again, which we're really excited about. Um, he, he tells a story about, um, I can't remember, it's two of his kids, I think it's two, his two daughters, and uh, they were both younger when this happened. And, you know, he was in the kitchen with them, the two of them, were, they were kind of bickering, um, they didn't know he was in the kitchen, and one of them just kind of reared back and smacked her sister. And Dr. Cox said, hey! Like he saw what happened, he said, hey! And then the, the perpetrator looks at 
her dad and she goes, forgive me. And, and Dr. Cox said he had this moment where he's like, hmm, is this like, maybe this is one of those like cool grace moments with my kids. I'm going to like show them grace. And he's like thinking about that. And then he looks at his daughter who's just been struck and she's looking at him like, are you serious? Like, I, 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 have, I have been injured. And think about what's the message it sends to her, to the one who's been injured if he's like, you know what, it's fine, don't worry about it, no big deal. See, we, we know, we know that, that a payment has to be made, it has to be made right, we need justice, and God knows that. And so what God does, because, because he is both just and righteous, but also gracious, he does what no other God of any other religion does, becomes a man, He becomes a man and does what no other God of any religion does, suffers. A God who suffers? It was necessary that the Christ suffer. And so that's what Paul preaches. And it's shocking. It's shocking to the people. Why does he do this? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The reason he endured the cross is because of the joy that laid after it. You know what that joy was? Us. Us being with him. Being welcomed into the triune communion of love being part of a world made right and new. Oh, Jesus looked, he looked at the joy that was set before him and because of that joy, he could endure the cross, despising its shame because that joy was so much greater. And because of that, you and I, friends, we can suffer if we have a joy set before us. We can, second point, share in Christ's suffering. Because that's what happens here. They share in Christ's suffering. Um, Paul, Paul preaches, verse 4, this Jesus as Lord. And it makes people angry. It angers some of the Jews. And so they, they gather together a mob and show up at the house where the preacher's staying. So, like, be careful letting missionaries come stay at your house, I guess. They, they show up at the house. It's Jason's house. We don't know much about Jason except he was Jason. They show up at Jason's house. Somehow, perhaps Jason has hidden the uh, Apostle Paul and Silas or sent them on their way. He knew they were coming. Somehow, they don't find them. And Jason willingly, because, because he wants the gospel to keep going forth, because he wants, because he wants people to know about this, Jason willingly just let, he let, lets them take them. Jason goes. And Jason's brought before the magistrates of the city. And they accuse him. And they, they accuse him and say, these people have turned the world upside down. And what they're saying, it's, it's turning the world upside down because what they're saying is that there's a different king. A different king from Caesar, which is treasonous. 
and it's Jesus. And the Christians don't back down from this. They don't back down from this because they, they believe that it's true. They don't go to the political entity that's going to, that could like save them. They don't ask Rome to save them or to, to they don't try to take over Rome. The, the Jews are turning to Rome. The Jews are looking to Rome to give them their position of power. The unconverted Jews are saying, hey, these guys, they're kind of like messing up your Rome thing. And you know what happens to these people who are looking to Rome for their help? In like 30 years, the temple of Jerusalem is going to be desecrated and destroyed by Rome. Man, if you look to political power to be what saves you and preserves you, you, historically speaking, are going to be disappointed. It it makes me think of uh, a Sunday school class a pastor told me he was teaching. And it got to the end end of the class and he said, hey, like, how do you think our church would do if if suffering like really broke out against Christians, like what would we do if, if the government kind of turned against believers and it was really hard to be a Christian? And he said it was interesting. The conversation that, that happened veered from answering that question towards how can we make sure that never happens in our country? And that, converse, that conversation, that Sunday school class was here. Now listen, me too. I like to be comfortable. I I don't like the idea of thinking about our world, our, our country being one where it's difficult to be a Christian, to raise our children to be Christians, where we won't experience some kind of persecution. But friends, our hope is not that, it, our hope is not that this country would always be just an easy place to be a Christian. That is not our hope. Our hope is in this Jesus, this Jesus that Paul preaches, this Jesus who said it was necessary for him to suffer. That's our hope. It's in him that he is our king. And what our King Jesus tells us what, what he says to the crowd right after, right after they've heard Jesus tell Peter, get behind me, Satan, Jesus turns and just to double down on like, hey, listen, following me, it, like I'm not, I'm, I'm not the Messiah you think I am. Right after he's told them the Son of Man must be crucified and, and Peter rebukes him and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he looks to that crowd and he says these words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus is a life of taking up our cross, which is not comfortable. Taking up our cross is not comfortable. And so, friends, how can we take up our crosses? What are ways that the Lord Jesus may be inviting us to take up our cross? Perhaps it's taking up your cross with your parenting. Do you, do you want your kids to be religious just so like they're nice and don't embarrass you and you kind of like fit into the cultural norm of Houston? Like I want maybe like, I want my kids to be like just enough religious to not be weirdos, right? 
Let's be honest. <laughs> or, or do we want them to love Jesus and to find him precious above all other things that the world will throw at them? Even if it means that they suffer. Even if it means that they're called to ministry or to like missionary work somewhere far away. Or maybe it means that like God calls them to make Thanksgiving awkward and like share the gospel with your family. Do we want our kids to just be like religious enough or do we want them to find Jesus precious? Y'all, you'll, you'll die for what you think your kid needs. You'll take up your cross for whatever you think your kids needs. If you think that your kid's hope is them getting in like an incredible college or getting an incredible job, you'll, you'll sacrifice and die to make that happen. What are we taking up our crosses for? Follow the money trail. Follow the time trail. Where do we invest our time and our money for our kids so that, so that we can give them the thing that we think is most precious? If it's Jesus, y'all, if it's Jesus, if, G, if, you want them to, if you want them to find Jesus precious, bring them to church. And I'm saying this to the second service folk, like they need to be in worship service. Like if you can't come to the first service and they can't do youth group afterwards, like the thing that they most need is to be worshiping with the people of God. They need to be worshiping with the people of God and bring them here. But also bring them to the youth ministry, even if like they're like, ugh, there's like no one from my school there and there's awkward kids. Same, like all of us are awkward, okay? Like we, that's the church. That's the church, we, we need each other, but, but we need to be around people who are reminding us that the gospel, the gospel is what this is all about. That Jesus is our hope. That it was the necessary suffering of Jesus that's our hope. We want to point them to the grace of the suffering Messiah. So we take up our cross, take up our cross with our parenting, perhaps it's even taking up our cross with the way that we love our neighbors and listen to them. Do we, do we, dismiss, do we dismiss it immediately when someone claims that something racist happened? Do we just immediately dismiss it because of critical race theory? Or... Or are we willing to, as the scriptures tell us, to live by the scriptures as the scriptures tell us to be slow to speak, to, to, to be quick to listen, to be willing to suffer the prick of our own conscience, to repent, to repent and move towards reconciliation, noting, by the way, that in this passage, we once again see God's heart for bringing all kinds of people together. It's just God's heart. It happens over and over. It couldn't be clearer in the book of Acts. Like once again, church is starting. Who's in it? Um, Jews, Gentiles, women, men, like, every, like everyone, just all kinds of people. All kinds of people are in it. That's who God is. He, he wants to bring all kinds of people into the church. We take up our cross with loving our neighbor. Take up our cross with our pride. Like, do you, do you defend yourself when your roommate or your coworker or your spouse brings a criticism to you, do you just immediately snap into defense mode? And like, or like, listen, I won't defend myself as long as you can give an airtight argument 
and answer every single question that I raise about your criticism with a clarity that I can understand and a reason that is 100% precise. Then I'll listen to your criticism. Is that, how, is, is that what is required for you to hear a criticism or are you willing to swallow your self-righteous pride and hear and hear the word of a brother or a sister which is meant to wound to heal? To give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not just trying to like be a jerk, but they're actually trying, because they love you, or like speaking into your life. Your spouse is speaking into your life. Your roommate's speaking into your life. Okay, this is getting too autobiographical for me now, so let's move on. Y'all, there is no better witness than a Christian who's willing to take up their cross and suffer because the one that we're witnessing to is a God who took up his cross and suffered. And so that's what we see happening here in Acts 17. They, they suffer. How do we do this? We have to have hope. We have to have that same joy set before us. The hope from Christ's suffering. A few years ago, um, a lot of y'all know we have, so my wife Chrissy and I have five kids. We also now have a dog, so pray for us. But we, uh, it was um, probably like three years ago, we went through like a two-month stretch where we got RSV, which is not good for babies, just in case you don't know, croup, which is like a very scary-sounding cough for your baby. It sounds like they may die. It's very scary. Then we got the stomach bug. Then we got the flu. And we thought we were done. But at the end of the two-month stretch, we got the stomach bug again, which is like the last one I would have picked. It's like the worst. And it's like 2 a.m. We, 2 a.m., and you know, all the stomach bug things had happened. And we're getting back in bed, and Chrissy's head hits the pillow, and she just goes, one day I will be resurrected. <laughs> I was like, are you okay? Like, are you good? <laughs> one day I'll be resurrected. Y'all, that's it. Like, that is how we have hope in the midst of suffering. Like, one day, this broken world will be made right. Fanny Crosby, great hymn writer. She's blind as a baby. Uh, we sing some of her songs here. A minister once said to her, Fanny, I think it's a great pity. I think it's a great pity that the master showered so many gifts on you but did not give you the gift of sight. And her reply was, if I could have petitioned God for one thing before my life began, it's that I would have been born blind. Why, he said. She answered, because when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever see will be that of my Savior. How do we press on? Even if your name's Fanny, right? <laughs> How do we press on? Hope in the life to come. Horatio Spafford, another hymn writer, lawyer, Presbyterian elder, sounds like some of y'all, lived in the 1800s in Chicago, lost almost all of his wealth in the great Chicago fire. A couple years, two years later, he sends his wife and his um, four daughters to England. He was intending to join them, but he got held up in some business dealings, so he was going to go on a boat after them. Well, the ship that his 
wife and four precious daughters, ages 12, 7, 4, and 18 months old. That boat was struck by an iron shipping vessel, and it sunk. And he received a telegram from his wife, Mary, that said, saved alone. Four babies died. And while Horatio Spafford was on the boat crossing the same water, the same water where his four sweet babies laid at the depths of the ocean, he wrote the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How? How can it be well? Because of what Christ's suffering has earned. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer so that what Horatio Spafford writes in his last verse might be true. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul? Do you have the hope, the hope and the joy set before you because of Christ's resurrection? Because what Paul preaches is, if you look at it closely, it's not just the necessity of the suffering and the death of Jesus, but also that he rose. He rose again. He's alive. And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians only a short time after, maybe a couple months after, he writes them first Thessalonians because they're still suffering and what he writes them He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have set a hope before us by the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of your son, King Jesus, who sits at your right hand, whose work is finished, who has sent his spirit to help us, to help us press on. Lord, would you set the joy of your salvation before us so that we may suffer, so that we may suffer well, so that our suffering may be a witness to others, to the hope that we have, all for your glory, not for ours, but for yours. In Jesus' name, amen.